I'm on. No, I'm not on. Am I on? I am on already. So I'm going to pick on John already. Because I didn't, you know, he got on me last time I preached saying I picked on him and he wasn't here. But of course he does this thing. He plays the guitar for us this morning and he steals all of the stools. All of them. I am surrounded by stools. He is surrounded by stools. He might say surrounded by fools, but that's another story for another time. All right, so some housekeeping. What a rough morning. We're going to be talking about enemies a little bit in Psalm 139. And the number one enemy today was the technical side of the house. Nothing wanted to cooperate. I think I just saw the words go up. And we cannot see them. I can see them. I have some pretty good eyes, but I don't know if we'll be able to fix that. But yeah, it has uh, fought us tooth and nail today. Praise God for my wife. She does have a book back there that I tried to follow. I'm not that technically savvy. We're going to go with John, not the professional side. We're not going to say we're not that professional. We're just going to say we're not that technical. So I am not that technical, but thankfully I can read. So I did read what Tara put up there so I can somewhat get these technical things going. So those out on the Internet can finally see us. They can see the words. They probably can't see these words right now. But uh, we're going to do our thing. I'm going to be reading all of Psalm 139 as we go throughout the text anyway. So do your best to follow along. I believe the little inserts that you guys have, at least have, verses 1 through 6 on there. So since I need to get my bearings back, I've been back and forth all morning. Say again. Or you do have a Bible. Yeah, you do have a Bible. So Pat did bring up a good point. There are some uh, soft-covered Bibles under the chairs. And I know many of you have a phone which uh, as long as you're not playing like solitaire or something like that while I'm preaching, you should be able to uh, get some type of Bible app on there so you can follow along. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as Pastor John iterated, uh, there's just so much going on in our world today. And uh, already this morning here, there has been so much going on. Um, So we just pray that you would calm our hearts, that you would, especially for your servant here now, Lord, Take anything that would deter me from focusing on you, anything that would hinder me from preaching your word. May you remove that now and help me to bring forth truth that would bring glory and honor to your name and that would edify your people. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So two weeks ago, we had back-to-back Tim Bowditches. Two weeks ago, Pastor Tim preached from Psalm 105, and I remember one of the first things he did was he posed the question as to whether or not Psalm 105 was your favorite psalm, and all of you raised your hand. Actually, some of you even jumped up and down in your seat to say that Psalm 105 was your favorite psalm. I guess I have a different recollection of what happened that day than than the rest of you. All right, so that might not have been the case, and when it comes to Psalm 139, this might not be your favorite psalm as well, but it does contain an oft-quoted verse. And when it comes to this verse, typically the whole verse is not mentioned, but only a portion of the verse. And you know where I'm going? When I'm talking about this verse, it is the verse that says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a, a verse that we like to quote a lot. Now, as we reflect on different verses in the Bible, it's important that we either don't, A, take them out of context, which I'm not saying we're doing. 
when we're talking about being fearfully or wonderfully made, and or B, we forget the rest of the context in which the verse is found. And I think we fall into the latter more than we fall into the former. I think we have a tendency when we look at that verse that says we're fearfully and wonderfully made, we forget everything else that surrounds that verse in Psalm 139. Now, it's good for us, as I said, to remember that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. This is something that I hope we not only remember when it comes to being good stewards of our mind, body, and spirits, but also as we interact with fellow image bearers, right? Because not only am I individually fearfully and wonderfully made, that means each one of you are also fearfully and wonderfully made, and then that should impact the way that we interact with one another. But with all that said, we cannot focus in on being fearfully and wonderfully made while negating what the rest of the verses are saying in reference to the one who created us in that manner. So as we look at the verses surrounding the oft-repeated phrase, fearfully and wonderfully made, we observe that it is a psalm that praises God for his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. The psalm consists of four paragraphs, each consisting of six verses. So it's going to be very easy to follow along when it comes to this psalm. So, of course, if it's four paragraphs of six verses each, we're going to see how well you paid attention in math class. That means there's 24 verses within this psalm. The context of the psalm is not supplied in the heading, but according to scholars, the psalm is a psalm of innocence composed by a religious leader who was accused of idol worship. I've also seen some scholars note that this is a psalm that kind of encompasses three different types of psalms that we've covered in the past. So we could see it as a praise psalm, right, as it's giving praise to God for his wisdom and his omnipresence and his omnipotence, as I said before. It's also a lament as he talks about his enemies. And then for some, see it as an imprecatory prayer as he talks about his enemies as well. And an imprecatory prayer is a prayer that wishes ill will on our enemies, which we will see as we get to the latter part of this psalm. The psalmist here is asking the omniscient God to probe him and to testify to his innocence. This assumed context is based on the first and last verses of the psalm, but more specifically the last verse, where the psalmist asks God to search him and know him and see if there be any grievous way in him. The word for grievous way could also mean occult practice. So if this is the case, the psalmist is asking God to search him and know his heart in order that God would reveal any idolatry in him. The psalmist petitions God with confidence, not so much because he is fully relying on his own character, but instead he comes to God because he understands that he is fully exposed before the all-knowing God, and God will lead him in the way everlasting. So now let's go to the text. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 6. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. 
even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So as we look at verses 1 through 6, the psalmist recognizes that God knows every minute detail about him. And just look at the verbiage that we had in here. He knows when he rises up and when he sits down. And even going further, before he even speaks one word, God knows the very words that are going to come out of his mouth. Knowledge of this fact for us should cause both comfort and trembling. So why comfort? The very God who knows everything about us knows what we need, when we need it, and even more than that, intercedes for us even when we don't know how to ask for it. That's how well God knows us. Romans 8, 26 through 28 reminds us, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, we just read that in Psalm 139, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So God knows exactly what we need because he knows us that well. And he is working out all things for our good. And one of the things that I want to encourage you with this morning, saints, is as we continue to deal with this pandemic, find comfort in the fact that God knows each one of your fears, each one of your hurts. And as we'll even see later on in the psalm, he even knows your anger. I'll, I'll put it up front. I think it's safe to say we could see this pandemic definitely as an enemy. And I'm moving a little forward right now, but as we look forward, I know each one of us are praying that God would slay this enemy quite quickly so each one of us can move on with our lives. And whether or not you've prayed that to God, the psalm is assuring us that if that is in your heart, God already knows and he is there for you, which we'll see in the next couple of verses. I also noted, though, that as we talk about the knowledge of God and how much he knows about us, and I, I will conclude that he knows us so well that he knows us even more than we know ourselves, that this very fact should also cause trembling. Now, why trembling? Because even the very things that we try to keep private are before the eyes of an all-knowing God, so much so that he sees when we sin against him in thought, word, and deed, right? So he sees our deeds when we sit down and when we go. He knows our thoughts. And again, before we even speak a word, he knows what is on our lips. So I might do well in hiding it from you. But when it comes to my sin, I cannot hide it before an all-knowing God. He sees everything. As I read this portion, I was reminded of Adam and Eve. Right? We all remember in Genesis 3, 
Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the tree that they were prohibited not to eat from. And now they hear God walking in the garden. And what's the first thing they do? They hide themselves. God confronts them on their hiding, and they know that we're hiding because we're naked. Of course, they negated to tell the fact of the whole story of why they were hiding, but they claim that they're hiding because they are naked, rather. And God poses the question to them, well, who told you that you were naked? And essentially what's happening there is God isn't asking them because he doesn't know. God is having them confess as to what they did because he already knows the very sin that Adam and Eve have committed in the garden. It also reminded me of maybe not too much of a well-known incident in the Bible, but Achan in Joshua chapter 7. And I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Achan, but uh, we have the people of Israel, and now Moses has died, Joshua has taken over, and the people of Israel are now going forth to take hold of the promised land. They just had their battle in Jericho, and as they're going to have their battle in Jericho, God tells them, do not take any of the things that are dedicated to the Lord. So whether it be the gold and silver of the treasury or any of those other things that were dedicated to the Lord, the Israelites were prohibited from taking those things. Well, unfortunately for Achan, Achan decided that the very things that God said not to take, he was going to take. So now that the Israelites go forward to go into that battle against Ai, a battle that they thought they were going to win because they far outnumbered the people of Ai, what happens? They lose the battle. Now, Joshua and the people are confused because, Lord, you told us to go forth. You told us that this was the promised land and this is the land that you called us to take. Why are we losing this battle? And God tells them, you are losing this battle because there is sin among you. Now, here's the interesting thing. They pretty much had to go through each tribe and each family and each clan to determine who this was, but God already knew who this was. But Here's one of those things, again, that this should cause trembling and that should remind us that we can't hide our sin from God. As Achan took those devoted things, he attempted to hide the devoted things in his tent. He thought it, he would be able to hide these things from God that he stole and put them among his own belongings. But the God who sees and knows all saw what Achan did from start to finish. And one of the things that I brought up before, Achan might have been able to hide his sin from Joshua and the rest of the people, but he was unable to hide his sin from God. And the same goes for each one of us saints. We might be able to hide our sin from each other, but God sees and he knows. And this isn't one of those things to put the type of fear in you that now we're afraid to uh, live our life, but it's one of those things that we should freely be able to confess our sins one to another because, number one, God does see it. We should be also repentant before a holy God, but also confess our sins one to another that we might be able to grow in holiness and be conformed more and more to the image of the one who has created us. Because let's be honest, we are not hiding our sin from God. So why not just confess it? Amen? Within these first six verses, we have almost what seems like a transition as we look at verse 5. It says, you hem me in 
behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Now, there are different interpretations as to what this verse might mean. Uh, The Reformation Study Bible, in regards to these two phrases, notes the following. He hems me in. The Lord sets his limits around the psalmist's actions. And when it comes to lay your hand upon me, the Lord guides him in life. So the psalmist is potentially reflecting on what God does. This is why he's bringing his petition before him, because he trusts that it is God who sets his limits and guides him in life. So if both rather verses 5 and 6 are a response to God's omniscience, then possibly the psalmist is acknowledging that in his wisdom, God is the one who is guiding his life. But I like what the Zondervan NIV Study Bible and how they defined it when it comes to you hem me in. It says the psalmist is expressing that God keeps him under scrutiny. And I think this more falls in line to the context of the first six verses. Because as we look at the immediate context, especially in relation to the other verbs used within these first six verses, as we unfold these other verbs, it will definitely make sense. So let's look at verse one again. You have searched me, which can also be interpreted, and I've seen it interpreted in other translations, you have examined me. So kind of gives us almost like the picture of a doctor looking at his patient. Dr. Joe, that should resonate with you. You have known me at the end of verse one. You know is the Hebrew yada, which in this context to know on a personal level. So God again knows us on a personal level. You search out my path has been interpreted as you carefully observe me or you scrutinize my path. The word used here depicts a farmer winnowing or sifting out the wheat from the chaff and denotes careful inspection. So there's that careful examination that we've talked about. So as we observe the other verbs within this paragraph of of these first six verses and look at the context, scrutinize is definitely a viable option for you, hem, me, in. And that should be something that's beautiful to us. Because, you know, again, as I'm looking and reflecting on these verses, we can with great assurance know that deism is false. Now, what is the idea of deism? Deism is that we hold to a God that God created all things, but then he just took a hands-off approach to his creation. Whereas Psalm 139 is showing us that that is far from the case, that the very God who has created us is intricately involved in the minute details of our lives. And as we fast forward again, that should kind of give us a different perspective of us being fearfully and wonderfully made and kind of give us the idea that we're fearfully and wonderfully made for a purpose. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other time. So saints, I pray that you find great comfort in the fact that God knows you. Just think of all of God's creation. And I know in Psalm 8, the psalmist brings this up as well. As we look at these first six verses and think about how God knows us, The very words, what is man that you are mindful of him should come to mind. That out of all of God's creation, God chose us to have a relationship with and to know. Just pause 
and think of that for a minute. Out of everything made in the universe, God chose you to know. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. As we move forward, next six verses, it says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? And a little spoiler alert, that is a rhetorical question. Right? The answer to that is nowhere. I cannot go anywhere. And the psalmist is now going to expand on that thought in the following verses. It says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And Sheol is the place of the dead. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So as we look at these verses, saints, there is nowhere we, where we can hide from the presence of God. As we continue to deal with this pandemic, that should be a hearty amen. I, I pray over the last year and a half, and it's tough to say that, year and a half, that that's something that we've reiterated from the pulpit time and time again. That even in the midst of going through lockdowns, um, even in the midst of still having to stay somewhat socially distant, we have not been alone at any time because God has been with us every step of the way. Every step of the way, God has been with us. So from March of 2020 until now, and as we continue to deal with this, God is with us every step of the way. As I was thinking of these, this portion of Scripture, two things came to mind. I'm probably showing my age as I do this as well, but it at least will resonate with you. Who remembers the famous little quote that I'm sure many of us in the 90s had somewhere in our house on a wall when it came to footprints in the sand? So I'm sure. Who still has it up? Man. I don't have it up either, so. I don't know if I ever had it up. In any case, the whole premise behind footprints is the sand is, is what? The individual is recollecting on what they've been through. And as they recollect what they've been through, they notice that they only see one set of footprints. So in their mind, as they've gone through everything in life, they've been left to themselves. God has been nowhere to be found. And now as they question God on these things, the response is what? I carried you. There's only one set of footprints because I was with you every step of the way. Those aren't your footprints. Those are mine, and it's me carrying you. I am with you. That is great news, saints. So not only does God want to know you, he wants to be with you. Think on that. If you're like me, I know my personality. There's sometimes I don't want to be with me. And I know Tara's saying amen at home right now. She's watching this. But despite me, God wants to dwell with me. Think on that. That is the beauty 
of the gospel. We went over that several months ago, that he dwelled among us and he still does. And may we find great comfort as we continue to deal with this pandemic. I know Pastor Tim read from chapter 27 last week, and this should resonate with each one of us as well. It resonates with me more because unfortunately this is something I dealt with. But even when the psalmist's parents left him, what did the psalmist recognize? That it was God that was still with him. So saints, I encourage you that in those times where you feel like you're all alone and God is not there, that you would remember verses such as this and know that he is present and he is with you. I know I've reiterated this several times from up here, and this is just a great reminder of probably why we as a people should be praying more. But typically when we have that lack of a feeling of God's presence, it's easy to note right here as we see it that it's, it's not God. God is there. It's us. And unfortunately, there are circumstances in our lives that have blinded us from seeing that God is there. So in those times, I encourage you to go to your knees and pray and seek his face. He's there and he will answer. Maybe not in the timing that you want, but as they always used to say in the churches that I go to, he's always on time. So he is there and he will answer you. Praise be to God for that. As we transition to verses 13 through 18, we see the omnipotence of God, the very God who created us. It says the following. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. So we just talked about the fact that God intricately knows us as we looked at the first six verses. But to totally now flip our minds, God intricately knew us before there was even a hair on our head. Before or while we were in our mother's womb, God knew us. And of course, this makes sense. If he created us, of course, he would know us. The psalmist praises God because he is fearfully and wonderfully made and look at the response. He marvels at all of God's works. Saints, here's a question for you. When's the last time you stopped and paused, as these psalms sometimes call us to do, and sat in awe at all of God's creation? You just stopped and paused. I had a, a pastor one time tell me, this pastor was out of, Michigan, I want to say it was Lake Michigan. I might be getting my lakes wrong because there's like, what, five lakes up there? But he'd travel up there for the sole purpose up to Lake Michigan to watch the waves come in. Because as you travel up there, if you roll down your window, you could still be miles away and just hear the waves hitting the rocks. 
That's how powerful the waves are coming in. So he would go up there to essentially stop and marvel at God's creation. I had somebody stop by my house the other day. They were dropping off my kids from soccer. And uh, why people sometimes think of these things is beyond me. But said he wanted to see a tornado after we obviously had a tornado. And I'm like, dude, you don't want to see a tornado. And just before that, I'd been on Instagram. And if you follow News 12, you might have had the potential of seeing the tornado that swept through, I believe it was the New Jersey Turnpike, at the terminal right there. And I remember the first time just looking at that. So here I'm not even there physically, but I'm looking at that picture and I'm sitting there in awe, knowing that obviously this is God's creation at work. Saints, I encourage you to stop, pause, and look at God's creation. Now, granted, God's creation's not going anywhere, but I think it's more, more important than the other things that aren't going anywhere like Netflix. You can stop binge-watching for a little while. So here's an aside. <laughs> Instead of binge-watching Netflix during the pandemic, maybe go out to the beach or somewhere else and just sit there and pause and just marvel at God's creation. I know as some of us are getting older, it's going to be hard to look in the mirror. I'm even starting to get a little more soupy old pouch here and marvel. But still, as we even think about creation itself and how we were created as he brings up here. Now, obviously, for our new folks in here, our visitors, here will be a news flash for you, but everyone else should know this. Um, I have eight children. And I was there for each one of those births. In fact, I delivered one of our children. Amen. Which she is the kookiest. She is the craziest out of all my children. But that's another story for another time. I won't mention any names. But each time, and Doc, I'm sure this is the same for you, you're just in awe. It is awe-inspiring. And just to think, even as we deal with this pandemic, think on this. As we look at the human body, no matter how much science has developed, we still can't answer all the questions that relate to this body. But God can because he formed each and every one of us. That's beautiful. Saints were fearfully and wonderfully made. Relish in that fact. Now, I'm not saying praise man, because I know people get a little crazy when you think, you know, is he telling us to praise each other? No. But marvel at the fact that you're part of God's creation and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And there's something that comes with that. There's beauty in that. There's dignity in that. And that's something we especially need to think as we're going to transition to the next couple of verses as we think of those who are enemies. Those persons deserve dignity and respect as well because they're fearfully and wonderfully made. But before we get there, note how the psalmist talks about even before he was born, God had determined the psalmist's days. So although we don't know this, we do know part one. We don't know part two. God knows our birth date 
or our born date, as some folks would say, and our death date. Think on that. He already knows. For some of us, we get a little too preoccupied with that. But knowing that God knows our beginning and our end, why not just live life to his glory? Because he is the one who has established your days, and he, as we see here in his omnipotence, has established it for a purpose. So therefore, live to the glory and honor of God, since he is the one who has established your days. In closing out this section, as the psalmist reflects on God's thoughts of him, he recognizes that they are vast and precious. Kind of reminded me of when we sing, How Deep the Father's Love, right? We talk about God's love and how it's vast beyond all measure. That's God's thoughts of us. God's thoughts of us are vast beyond all measure. You, me, his thoughts of us are vast beyond all measure. And again, that should, one, give us hope. It should give us joy. Again, that the God who has created all these things, the God that we can go out and marvel at the rest of his creation, again, thanks on me. He has vast thoughts about me. Now, as we look at the closing portion of this psalm, we see it takes a little different turn. So he now takes this focus off of God, and this is probably where our scholars that I noted earlier come with the context to this. And he turns his attention to the wicked, but at the end asks God to scrutinize him. So verse 19 through 24, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And as he closes, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So as we look at verse 19, we see that the psalmist's hope is that God would slay the wicked. And I think it's important to note that as we look at this verse, that the psalmist recognizes that it is God who slays the wicked. It is not the psalmist's job to take matter into his own hands. God is the judge of all, not the psalmist, and the psalmist is recognizing that. And I think all of us would do well to recognize that as well. As we, as we look at our enemies, it's not our job to take vengeance. And we're reminded repeatedly in the Bible that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But we're going to look at what we should do when it does come to our enemies. But I want to look at a couple of key words. So notice that the psalmist says he hates his enemy, he loathes them, so on and so forth. Now, this word is defined as the desire to have no contact or relationship with another. It is the opposite of love. And I like what they did here. It says, love unites and hate separates. 
The psalmist hates the wicked and considers them enemies. Why? Because they are enemies of God. And here's what he notes. He says, they speak against you with malicious intent and they take God's name in vain. Now, one of the commentaries that I was reading noted that as he spoke of malicious intent and taking God's name in vain, it might have been the fact that they were lying on him and invoking God's name as they were doing it. So remember we said that one of the accusations potentially was that the psalmist was being accused of idolatry and his enemies were invoking God's name as they were accusing him of that idolatry. One thing I do want to note is that we must remember that when it comes to the Psalms, and I think John would note this as well, it is poetry. And the author is expressing how he feels. So it's not necessarily a call for us to hate our enemies. So I encourage you guys when you pray to God to, yes, express your feelings, but as you express your feelings, you leave them there with the Lord and then don't go on throughout life hating your enemy. Because as Christians, that is not what we are called to do. In fact, Jesus in Luke 26, I'm sorry, Luke 6, rather, 27 through 36, says quite the contrary as he says the following. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. I think that's why it's kind of important that we're very careful with our words. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And the end kind of gives us, as we look at Luke 6 here, as to why the psalmist had the plea that he had. More than anything, the psalmist was upset with God. Why? Because God still allows the wicked to have a place on this earth. And as we just read at the end of Luke 6, God does what? He's merciful to them, and he provides for them. Saints, we're called to do the same. So it's very easy for me to come in here And we've done this well, so don't think I'm negating the fact that we have done this well. And to do something to bless each one of you. There's no commendation in that, though, from what Luke 6 is saying. What Luke 6 is reminding us of is there's more commendation when I go out there and find someone who hates me 
And instead of heaping curses on them, I look to bless them. When I see them in need, and I, I see this all the time, I don't have a ha-ha, that's what they get because they're enemies of God, when in fact, I'm probably more upset that they're enemies of me. So I look at that person's circumstances, and I'm happy, and I believe there's a verse in the Bible that kind of warns us against that as well, about finding joy when your enemy is down. No, we're to provide for our enemies. We're to bless our enemies. When we see our enemies in need, we're the ones who are to provide for them. We say it time and time, again from the pulpit, at least Pastor John does, what is the mission of this church? Pastor John, you have not done a good job in telling them. <laughs> What's the first part of that, though? To show the world what God is like by loving God and loving our neighbor. So when we hate our enemies, we are not showing the world what God is like. I know I say this a lot, but I see it all the time, so you will have to forgive me. If you want to slap me after this, by all means, please do. But it drives me crazy when I look on the Internet and we see our enemies and we just have to leave a comment. We just have to do it. And it's the world doing it. That's one thing. I think this is why John has gotten off of Twitter, and I probably need to. But, but I see it in the church time and time again where we have pastors bickering. Pastors. I'm not even talking about people that are lay people. Pastors bickering before an all-seeing world. That all they have to do is click on that person and see the thread of these two people going back and forth. And the last thing that people are seeing when they look at that is what God is like. That's probably why housekeeping will be in the house of God first before it is anywhere else. Amen? But saints, I encourage you to love your enemy. Are you going to be reviled? Yes. As we see the context of this psalm, are you going to be lied on? Yes. You're called to love your enemy anyway. And here's the thing, as you love them, provide for them, care for them, and pray for them, that might be the very means that the omnipotent God that we just talked about is using to bring them to Christ. That might be the very means that he is using, and that's something that we have to take note of. So my prayer is that we would have the mind of Christ and as our enemies revile us and do all these things, we can say just as Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We have been forgiven much, so let us go out and do the same in forgiving our enemies. The psalm ends with the psalmist petitioning God to search him and know him and lead him in the life everlasting. I like how the Reformation Study Bible sums up this verse. It says, the psalmist submits himself to God's correction and direction. Saints, may we do the same. May we submit ourselves to God's correction and direction. Knowing 
that he will lead us in the way everlasting and trusting that as he disciplines and guides us, he knows what we need, that he disciplines us for our good, and the whole purpose of that is so that we might share in his holiness. As God guides us in the way everlasting, the whole focus on that is for us to be conformed more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. May we submit to that. That's the whole purpose of God calling us to himself in the first place, right? We were made in his image. We fell into sin. Christ had to become that image bearer for us. He had to become that second Adam and suffer the punishment that we should have got. But the whole point of that is so that we might become more and more like Christ. So the God who knows us, who knows our sins, knows our weaknesses, wants us to submit to him and become more like Jesus. May God search each one of our hearts. May God expose our sin. As he does so, may we be a repentant people. And as we repent, may God use it that we might become more and more like Christ. I close with Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or fainthearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Amen.